Welcome to the Home Class Movie Chat, the place to get into all things movies. We'll leave no genre untouched, from romance to horror, adventure to comedy, and everything in between. We'll cover the good, the great, the bad, and the can I please get the last two hours of my life back ones you really wish that you could forget. So grab your popcorn and soda, sit back, and relax. It's time for the Home Class Movie Chat with Cat and Paul. Welcome to the Home Class Movie Chat Podcast, a place where we talk about good movies, bad movies, and everything in between. At the end of the episode, we will give a rating between zero to five movie reels. Zero being how do I get the last two hours of my life back, to five being as soon as the credits are over, I'm watching it again. Always remember to follow and subscribe to Home Class Movie Chat. It really helps the podcast to grow. And if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends about us. I'm your You're host, having a hard Paul. time with that one, aren't you? <laughs> I am. I'm having a very hard time right now. It may be because today's a special day. Yes. I'm your host, Paul, and with me is my co-host and wife, Kat. And Chief Heckler. And Chief Heckler, yes. <laughs> Just before we get in the movie, if you want to get in contact with us, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Home Class Movie Chat. We're also on iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, Player FM, Apple Podcasts, and also Spotify. And we have the website, homeclassmoviechat.com, where you can register for our newsletter. Yes, and you can find out what's going on with the ins and outs of Home Class Movie Chat. We don't. We really don't email very often, so you're fine. Yeah, but you know, I also check the emails every now and again, so. Yeah, but I mean, but, we don't send out, we don't bombard them with a ton of newsletters. Oh, no, we never will. That's that's one part about our about our podcast that uh, I think we have both agreed to is we're not going to bombard people with um, spam email and stuff like that. No, because it's all just supposed to be fun. Yeah, you want to get in contact with us? You you contact us. We will email you back, and whatever we need to do, we'll need to do. Yep, absolutely. But in saying that, the reason that uh, I'm having trouble with my mouth and everything else is because today is a special birthday day for me. Yes, and we're not going to torture people by making me sing at them, so. No, no, please. So you lucked out, buddy boy. Thank goodness I've actually decided to do the podcast on my birthday, that we didn't have to have a happy birthday song. But yes, it is my birthday. I am officially 49 years old, which is terrifying. But as they say, from here on in, who knows what's going to happen. But I've I've been, I thought I said to you in the last um, podcast, I was 16 a couple of times. Yeah. When we were reviewing um, Gallipoli. Yep. And uh, then you said, no, we can't. you can't be 16 because you need to be legal. So... Uh, yeah, I don't want to commit statutory rape. <laughs> All right. So officially I will be then 18. How's that? But yes. That works. I'd that rather being... 21. But okay. Yeah, but that being said, I am officially today 49 years of age. Yay. Happy birthday, Paul. It's terrifying when you look at it. I only feel like I'm 16. That's what I was. That's how, that's how the conversation started because I said, I, I feel like I'm 16. You yeah. said, no, 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 you have to feel 18. Yeah, just tell your remind your body of that fact that you feel like you're 16. Oh, believe me, sometimes I get up, I feel like I'm uh, 94 rather than 49. Okay, but we digress. Okay, so today being my birthday, I've decided to do my most favorite movie, Blade Runner from 1982, starring uh, Rodger Hauer, Sean Young, Daryl Hannah, and Harrison Ford. What do you mean, and Harrison Ford? He's the main character. The main man, Harrison Ford. But and yes. Edward James almost is in it. Yeah, he is actually. Yeah, he's the uh, the other um, the other police officer Gant. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, it cracked me up when we were watching it. And I'm like, hey, that looks like Edward James Olbos. And you're like, well, it is. And I'm like, oh, well, that explains that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're so in tune with movies when we sit there and go, oh, he looks like such and such. That is. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Very now, young. One of the fun parts about this movie is because it is your absolute favorite movie, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that you actually know about this film. Yes, so I'm I, really looking forward to having you share that with everyone. And I will say straight off the bat that when I first saw this movie, um, I never saw it in the cinema. I actually saw it on um, VHS because Harrison Ford was in it and it looked futuristic. I thought it was very much like Star Wars. I could not have been any further th from the truth than that. And for the longest time, I didn't get it. I didn't get because there was really no no huge amounts of action. So I really didn't get this movie at all. It, it took me a good three to four times of watching it to really understand about the movie and what they were trying to do and what the, the movie was portraying. Um, and that's how it became one of my most favorite movies. And I've gone from every, I've got every, every incarnation of this movie. He really does. Trust me. From the original, which has um, Harrison Ford's um, voiceovers throughout the movie which i always thought i always felt um did detract from the movie because the music i'll say off the bat is absolutely glorious the music Vangelis is, is a wonderful composer oh god yes um i have said many times i could live inside of his music especially blade runner because it's something about the music that actually sets the whole movie and I think it would be a different movie had they have never got Vangelis to to be the composer in this. Oh, it would have been a totally different film. It really would have. It's the same way as if someone said you could do Jurassic Park without John Williams. It would be. Yeah, right, right. It wouldn't be. No, a, a, it wouldn't be Jurassic Park. It wouldn't have the same feel. So for me, for Blade Runner, this movie really the music was was uh, intricate as far as the music the movie goes. Integral. Integral, yeah, but it was an it was just it was just absolutely beautiful. I love the the yeah. Vangelis, and I remember when I actually got the soundtrack. I took it home to my mum and dad, and because and mum, my mum and dad had always exposed me to a lot of great music. I said, "Mum, I've got to let you listen to this this you know tape um, called Blade Runner." And she's like, "Oh, okay." So she sat and she listened to it, and at the end of it, she's like, "I need a copy of this." And <laughs> Back in those days, I was, you know, you were able to do tape to tape so I could get a blank tape and record it for her. My mum played this continuously because it was something about the music that was just, oh, it captured yeah, yeah. me. So originally the movie was, uh, release date was June, uh, June 25th, 1982. The budget for this movie was a mere $30 million, but actually made $41.5 million. That's not a bad return office. on investment. It's actually pretty good. Although they, they did say it was, it underperformed in the North American theatres. And there was some polarizing critics that didn't have a lot of you know great things to say about it. But as I said, the reason that I was attracted to this movie was because I thought Harrison Ford, Star Wars, this is a futuristic movie. This is going to be exactly like Well, it. And I think that's actually most likely why a lot of p critics and whatnot didn't care for it is they thought it was going to be another, you know, action movie because you've got... Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all this stuff that Harrison Ford's doing that is really action-based. Yeah. So you really thought that this was probably going to be another one of those. And it's a very esoteric, intellectual film. And a lot of people don't want to have to think that hard, especially when they think they're going into an action movie. So they just, because it wasn't what they expected, they just didn't care for it before they really got to know it. Yeah, and that's really one of the reasons that it took me a long time to really uh, enjoy and love this movie because it is a thinking movie. It's a very intellectual movie. 
that you know there are subtle little things within the movie that you've got to really sit and watch and you've got to understand the character development and where things are going and the way that society is broken down and the idea of having these these um some synthetic humans called replicants and the way that they've actually tried to explain to people that you know as it was going on you know we were colonizing different planets we're not going to allow human beings to go and do it so we're going to get robots essentially to do to the go and colonize part. the planets for us yeah put them in bad situations you know and that's to do the, the way, dangerous stuff yeah and that's the way so it really was showing that how society was progressing in back then 2019 what their thought of 2019 was going to be well i was i was just gonna say this is actually based on a book by philip k dick called do androids dream of electric sheep yep and i which i believe was published back in the 60s 1968 it was actually published yeah 68 yeah and i find it really interesting that they thought in a manner in in a matter of 31 years no 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 because it was in 20 this was set in 2019 so 50, 51 years. Yeah, 51 years. So in a matter just... of 51 years, Los Angeles would go from looking like Los Angeles to looking like Singapore. Yeah. And that we'd have flying cars and colonizing other planets all within the space of 51 years. Exactly. And that's why it was like, um, yeah, that's not really what, I mean, you look at 2019 now and you think, so where are all the flying cars? Yeah, where well, I'm actually glad we don't have flying cars because people can't drive them on the roads, let alone in the skies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? So we're going to start this movie off. Now, when the movie starts, it starts off with just your title page, which is Harrison Ford, Rudger Hauer, Blade Runner. and Which then... Vale Rudger Hauer, who passed away two years ago now. Yep, and funny enough, a little bit of uh, information is that he passed away in the exact year that was his character did. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So along with Star Wars, did this with the rolling credit. So Mm -hmm. uh, uh, when they did this movie, they did a similar one. So this is what you get when when the movie first opens up. You get this rolling credits. It says, early in the twenty first century, the Tyrell Corporation advanced robot evolution into the nexus phase a being virtually identical to a human known as a replicant the nexus six replicants were superior in strength and agility and at least equal in intelligence to their genetic engineers who created them replicants were used off-world as slave labor in the hazardous exploration and colonization of other planets after a bloody mutiny by a nexus six combat team in an off-world colony, replicants were declared illegal on Earth under penalty of death. Special police squads, Blade Runner units, had orders to shoot to kill upon detection any trespassing replicant. This was not called execution. It was called retirement. And that's how the movie opens up. The next scene that you see is a very dystopian 2019 Los Angeles. It comes up with on the screen, Los Angeles 2019. You get the beautiful music of Vangelis that opens up and you get an explosion, which is on the outer skirts of Los Angeles, their oil refineries that to let off the gases of the oil refineries, they it, it basically emit an explosion. So they you still see do that. So they do the, do that. But these are explosions with with fire and everything. Yeah. So this is the explosion that you're seeing as you're seeing cars flying across the horizon going to and from Los Angeles. And as the camera pans down, you can see just how smoggy and how terrible 
it is because it's just enveloped in all this smoke and it's just so incredibly depressing the way they have it they basically have the the opening scene where ford now there's the the character ford uh sorry holden gotta say ford and holden uh holden <laughs> i know it's terrible to say ford and holden yeah well okay you have to give the the context because not everybody americans don't know holden okay well holden is a an australian car company here in australia and ford is obviously a worldwide known car brand American so, in, car brand. so in australia we have Ford and Holdens, and you're either a Ford driver or a Holden driver. Holden and drivers, neither the two shall mix. No, Holden drivers are notorious for being, I can't say the word because this is a family-friendly podcast, but a morons on the road, and Ford drivers are just awesome. <laughs> and I'm sure that the, the reverse that is probably also thought oh, through in definitely. some circles. So in the movie, when it opens up, you see a office setting, and the office setting is this guy Holden, who is a Blade Runner, who he's, he's actually interviewing new um, employees into the Tyrell Corporation. And he's doing a void comp test, which is basically... Oh, I didn't realize that was for to, to employ the Tyrell Corporation. Yeah, because Tyrell was afraid that because they had this off-world colony tech and replicants were now deemed illegal, Yeah, he was screening all his new employees just right. in case... But why was Leon trying to go into Tyrell? Because as we go along... It's found that Roy Batty wants more life. So right. the way that he does it is that it's better to get in, to get in good with his employees and find out if we can extend our life. Oh, okay. Because replicants only have a four-year lifespan, which right. is part of the movie. All replicants that are that are developed, they have a four-year lifespan. Um, to that way, they they're limited. Anything that happens if they were born in 2012, they die in 2016. Right. 2019, 2022. It's basically to make sure that they only have a small amount of life. It's basically controlling. And they are slaves, so it doesn't matter. Control slaves, give them a four-year lifespan. Yeah. So the original guy that was doing the um, the thing, Holden, he was actually originally designated to play Harrison Ford's character as Deckard. Really? Yeah. They found that he, because they he was doing all the screen tests with all the actresses, who was going to be who were going to be Rachel and did all the, the love scenes and the kissing and they felt that this guy was Deckard. When they went out to look for Deckard as and I don't know why they were even going to be looking because they'd already settled on this guy to be Deckard. But for some reason one of the studio executives said Harrison Ford's just come off a really really um, popular movie, Star Wars. He's in the process of starting to do this thing, Indiana Jones. Could we just have a look at him? I can tell you exactly why they said that. Yeah. Box office draw. Nobody knows who the other guy is. More than likely. Harrison than Ford likely. would bring in a lot of people just to see it because he's in it. Yeah. But when he did the screen test, um, they said, absolutely, he would be hands down the best decade. They then did a screen test between with him and um, Rachel, which was... Um, Sean Young. Sean Young. And the chemistry was over the top. Yeah. And they said, this has got to be our decade. They didn't want to undermine this other guy because he'd been working with actresses for about six months before pre-production. So they gave him the role of Holden in the movie to be the opening scene of the movie. Yeah, as they, as they always say in the theater, there are no small parts, only small actors. Yeah, so basically it was to give him the, okay. But he must have been kind of pissed going from the lead role to this little role that nobody else remembers. Well, no, and it only, it, he was on the, the, the 
screen less than 10 minutes yeah exactly you, know? you must and when he was doing and when they were when they were doing the opening scene it was basically to see if that he was going to be if if any replicants were going to be infiltrating the tyrell corporation and when he settles on leon when he's interviewing him and gives him a test he says you know you see a turtle you know baking in the uh, you see a turtle you're walking along the desert you see a turtle and he goes what's a turtle you can see holden go what's a turtle okay he goes, now does leon know, know that he's a replicant he doesn't know this yet oh uh, i see i find it interesting that the replicants don't know the replicants no not yet and he says um because he, he remember he says my birthday was 2016 how old how old how long do i live and he goes four years this is what deckard says to him in, in in the street but when he goes to and of course holden's got an idea that he might be a replicant because when he says well, you don't, you don't, you've never seen a tortoise. Do you know what a turtle is? And he goes, yeah, I understand what a turtle is. I've never seen a turtle, but I know what you mean. And then he goes, okay, well, well you turn it over in the, in, you know, upside down and it's belly's baking in the hot sun. And he goes, you know, do you, do you write these down, these questions down, Mr. Holden, or do they, do they write them down for you? And he goes, this is just, it's just a test to initiate an emotional response. And he goes, you know, shall we continue? And Leon goes, uh-huh. And he says to him, using you know, only you know, using words, what's the best you know memory you have of your mother? And he goes, my mother. I'll tell you about my mother. And shoots him. Yeah. Because replicants, some replicants are not given Memories. the knowledge of what a mother is, what a father is. Right. He's a, he's a combat lift loader, so he basically is is like a um, he's the muscle of any engineering situation. So he can he can lift atomic loads all day. So he's not given that because he's just a worker bee. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Need to have, it's not relevant. No, but he's got the attachment of photographs in the in as we go along. So in 2019, Los Angeles, former police officer Rick Deckard is detained by Officer Gaff and brought into his former supervisor, Brian. Deckard, whose job as a Blade Runner was to track down bioengineered humanoids known as replicants and terminally retiring them, is informed that four replicants are on Earth illegally. Deckard, begin, Deckard begins to leave, but Brian threatens him and Deckard says that they have to watch a Blade Runner named Holden administer the Void Comp test, which is designed to distinguish replicants from humans based on their emotional response to questions. Now, did you just say that there are four replicants? There was. There, originally, there was originally six, but two ran through an electrical field right. and they lost the other four. So it was basically Roy Batty, yeah. Chris, yeah. Zora. And, oh, and, the, and Leon, yeah, I was, for, I was, was for, four yeah, of them I was, left. Yeah, I was forgetting. When they're going through, it tells you that Roy is Roy Batty is the leader, which is Rodger Howard. You've got Zora, um, and I can't remember her name. Uh, what was her uh, name? Joanne Cassidy. Joanne Cassidy. She was the leader of a kick murder squad, a combat team. Okay. Chris Daryl Hannah is a pleasure model, so basically she's just a prostitute, basically. And Leon is a an atomic uh, is, is, is an atomic lift loader. So he's basically an engineer that just, he's, he's like a, a forklift. That's yeah, all exactly. he does all day. Yep. But these guys are on biohazardous colonizing of planets and they're sent there to do that. Now, I don't know why you would need Zora as a, as a leader of a kick murder squad to be on another on another planet. But I guess if you've well, got. Well, because they're, they may be on another planet that maybe there's indigenous people there that are not happy about them colonizing. And the colony needs defense. So she has to eradicate them. So yeah. they send Zora in to yeah. eradicate them, basically. 
Because they don't tell you where they're trying to colonize. So Leon shoots Holden on the second question, and Bryant wants Deckard to retire Leon and three other Nexus 6 replicants. Deckard is not very happy about being back in as a Blade Runner, because when he's sitting on the street and he's having some noodles, and Gant comes to say to him, you know, uh, you're under arrest, and he says, you know, you've got the wrong guy, and he goes, and he says... There's, there's a language in Blade Runner called city speak. It's a mishmash of Chinese, Japanese, French, whatever. But it's it's very garbled, so you can't understand it. But there is people that actually know city speak. And when he's speaking the city speak, the Japanese guy that's actually serving Deckard is his lunch or dinner or whatever, because you can never tell whether it's daytime or nighttime because it's so overcast and raining and dark and horrible. Yeah. He says, you know, you're under arrest, Mr. Deckard. And he goes, well, you got the wrong guy. And he said, you know, you're a Blade Runner. And he's he mentions Bryant, which he obviously knows that's his boss, his former Bryant, his former boss, takes him to meet him and says, you know, there are four skin jobs walking. Now this is in the original, with Harrison Ford reading the the overview of the movie, he says this is the same kind of guy that calls black people the N-word. Now, do we know what Deckard was wanting to do instead of being a Blade Runner? It was never It was never conclusively told, uh, said why he quit as a Blade Runner. He just said, I, I was quit before I came in. I'm twi- twice as quit now. And that's when Bryant says, you know, you've got to know the score. If you're not cop, you're little people. No one knows why he quit being a Blade Runner. No, that's not my question. Nobody knew what he was doing. Or what he was wanting to do, rather than no, no, okay. he was never told. He never told us whether whether he wanted to be a Blade Runner or whether he wanted to be a, a farmer or whatever. He it, no one knew. All we knew it was is Harrison that, Ford. I'm guessing Carpenter. <laughs> could be, but that's all, what Harrison Ford does when his in his off times. Is he was actually working as a carpenter in Los Angeles when he got cast as um, in uh, American Graffiti and then in Star Wars, and then he never quite looked back. But he still does carpentry for fun. And apparently, he's very good at it. In this one, we don't know what he is other than he just didn't want to be a Blade Runner anymore. I guess he was sick of killing and doing that sort of stuff because mm-hmm. he does have remorse uh, as we go along. There is a there is a scene with Zora that he actually has a great deal of remorse. And in the original movie, he actually voices over the remorse that he actually has. In the the, the very final, uh, the final cut of the movie, which Ridley Scott had complete control over creatively, all the, the voiceovers were actually omitted from the movie and even Harrison Ford said he actually enjoyed the movie more without the voiceover mm. because the voiceover detracts from the music it detracts from you really getting involved in the movie um with him doing this commentary this running commentary it was like eh, and this is probably why I enjoyed it more with the director's cut the 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 final cut you know and the special director's cut where it actually gives you the music it gives you the the visuals and you can actually enjoy the movie more than listening to commentary, uh, commentary track, because the commentary track, you don't hear the music very much. It, it, it overtakes everything. So Bryant has Deckard meet with the CEO of the company that creates replicants, Dr. Eldon Terrell, so he can administer the test on a, on a Nexus 6 to see if it works. Now, this part of the, the movie is there's a, an owl that flies from one side of the office to the other. We first are introduced to... Uh, Rachel, she has no idea that she's a replicant. The only person that knows is Dr. Tyrell and Deckard because he's been told there's a a replicant over at Tyrell's. I want you to go and put the the machine on her. And Deckard said, well, if the machine fails, Bryant gives him this look like, well, you're the one that's got to kill her, not me, so I don't care. But she's got no idea at this moment she's a replicant. 
So when the when you see the the beautiful owl, you hear Rachel goes off. Do you like our owl? And he goes, it's artificial. And she goes, of course it is. And he goes, oh, it must be expensive. And she said, very. There's in this scene, there's like shimmering lights. Do, uh, Ridley Scott said to the the designers of the of the um, movie, I want there to be shimmering lights. Don't know how you do it. Don't know I mean, how. It you looks do it. like there's water, but there's no water. Yeah, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I want it. So they, the designers, had to go away and create it. And what they did is they on the floor, and you think that all it is is just black marble. It's actually, how can I explain it? They, it was almost like they put down um, a luminous paint, uh, paper, like our foil mm-hmm. that you you put foil, you cover food aluminum with. foil. You mean. aluminum foil? Thank you. They then sprayed it with a black like resin mm-hmm. on it, and they threw water over the top of it and and put the lights towards the the water. So when you see this shimmering gold light, it's actually the shimmering of the water shimmering off of this aluminum foil that looks like black tiles cool. but he but he wanted it this way because there's no other reason for there to be it should just be straight light yeah. and that's it there's no reason for it to be shimmering but he, Ridley Scott wanted it and said this is what I want go away and figure it out find a way to make it happen and you being a um in you know that sort of world you would be one of those people that would be assigned to figure it out they would come to you and say cat I want this go figure out how to do it yeah, as a technical director, that was my job a lot of the time. So you'd have to figure out how to do it. Tyrell expresses his interest in seeing the test fail first and asks him to administer it on his assistant, Rachel. I thought this was a very interesting way that he, he did well, this. Well, Tyrell wanted to see if it would really work if you didn't know that you were talking to a replicant. Yeah, and he said, so Deckard says, well, what on you? And he goes, try her. At this moment, Rachel's got no idea that she's a replicant. Yeah. She just thinks she's just a regular person. Well, well, that's because they were talking about the fact that they felt that it would be more effective and make them feel like they had a more full life if they gifted the replicants with memories. Yeah, and that's what that's what I, I'm getting to because when he administers the test, Rachel, unlike Leon, is very quick at her responses. You see a wasp on your arm, I'd kill it. I'd kill it. Uh, you know, your your son's got a killing jar that he kill, kills butterflies in. I'd take him to the doctor. You come across a, a, a full nude page uh, spread, you know, of a girl. You know, you, I, I've, I've, your husband comes across a full page space. I, I love her response. Are you testing if I'm a replicant or a lesbian? Yeah. And it's like she's just so, so quick with her answers. When he gets to the last question, he said, you know, you're watching a banquet in progress the the appetizers the appetizers consist of raw oysters and boiled dog she's never seen either one of these so she yeah. can't answer it so that's when Deckard sits back and goes there's a replicant and i think at that moment rachel because she she knows she doesn't know that she's a replicant right now but she knows she's failed yeah. she doesn't know why she's failed now talk about the very subtle special effect of her eyes yeah, so when they were doing, this is something that you've got to really watch out for because it, throughout the movie it's scattered. It's almost um, like an Easter egg. It is uh, because um, Daryl Hannah's uh, character, Pris, has it. Zora didn't have it. Neither did Roy Batty. Neither did Leon, but Rachel has it. And what they got her, what they got um, Sean Young to do is they got her to put these contact lenses in and they would then flash a small amount of light towards her so when you suddenly see her eyes light up red 
it's basically an indication that she's a replicant because if you see dr terrell he doesn't have it he's got no no red pigmentation when you see it in later times when you see uh pris you'll see the red the red flash in her eyes it's basically telling you who is it doesn't give you the whole thing of like you already know that roy's a, a a replicant you already know that leon is you know that zora is and you know that pris is and now rachel but some of them you don't get to see it so you've got that oh are they or are they not because they don't have the same pigmentation but anyway they got sean young to put these annoying um contact lenses in and he they just shine a very small light not directly into her into her but off to the side but just um, enough to catch that just an, enough to catch her eye and that was the same as they did for um the the owl now the owl funny enough was a real owl when they did the test on the owl they found out that that um that that animal can actually have that illuminous little look in her in their eyes so that's why they said oh it's it's artificial it's had that but that is an artificial bird because you can see this red flex in their eye and that's how they kept it going with the replicants so when tyrell explains uh oh, sorry so, so she she fails the test after a much longer standard te test deckard concludes that rachel is a replicant who believes she is human tyrell explains that she's an experiment who has been given false memories to provide an emotional cushion now we're going back to what you were saying about gifting memories yeah what are you saying about it oh nothing i already said it oh okay so it's my birthday you're not even participating in well my... i am but to be honest with you i kept falling asleep in this movie oh well this is why i love this movie because this movie excited to do but what tyrell does is to try and cushion their emotions he gifts them memories so it could be a memory of their mother or their father or photographs they've taken or places that they've been they've never been to any of the places that they're, they're gifted and that's what tyrell says i've gifted them the ability to believe these things so that way as they're maturing and as they're getting closer to death they've got something to hold on to yeah they believe that they've been you know at the 7-eleven having a, a drink with their best friend or they believe they've gone to a, a restaurant with their girlfriend they've never been any place so a lot of the memories that that um, Tyrell has given, like for Rachel, she was given gifted the um, ability to play the piano, and it's it was not her. It could have been Tyrell's niece. It could have been Tyrell's daughter. But because they've been nice and happy memories, they've impl he's implanted that into Rachel to make sure that she's okay as she matures. Well, in theory, it would make them more docile approaching their death. Because thinking Absolutely. that they'd had this full life. And I think that's what that's how they were trying to be nice to the replicants, as that we know that you're you're you know, you're either a pleasure model or a combat model or whatever, but you're still essentially we're trying to make you as human as we possibly can. As they say, human, you know, more human than human is our motto at Tyrell. Mm. They're trying to make sure that they are as human as we can we as they can be, but we'll give them some memories to make them really human. So yeah. there's no standing out either way so after searching leon's hotel room because they go over to find out what's going on uh deckard finds photos and a synthetic snake scale this the bathtub was disgusting i wouldn't have gotten yeah, it was bathtub. it was ugh. i mean i don't and as you said how did he find that snake scale 
I, you because the the light in in Leon's bathroom was very very dull. You have to really, I mean, he didn't have a flashlight. He didn't know anything. He was yeah. Just, I was like, with, with all the crud that was in there, how did he pick that out? And and how, why would he gravitate towards the bath anyway? But I also like to point out that doing police work, he used his fingers to pick it up, which would compromise any sample and anything on that. Because yeah, because there's no way that yeah, because he didn't he yeah. didn't pick up with it. Yeah, yeah. it put his prints all over it. Yeah, it's a great way of of uh, contaminating. Uh, a possible bit of possible bit of evidence there, yeah. there, um, Deckard. Roy and Leon investigate a replicant eye manufacturing laboratory and learned of J.F. Sebastian, a gifted genetic designer who works closely with Tyrell. This poor guy that was in the the eye world, because um, it was it was like minus something extraordinary. He was wearing a jacket that actually had a heater component in it, which was keeping him warm. So when Leon and Roy go in there and rip the jacket off of him, you can see how cold it is. Yeah. They're okay. They're, they're 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 replicants. They don't they're not affected to 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 heat or cold or whatever. This is a human being, and he immediately cowers. As well, you he, can see his breath. Oh yeah, but you can see how cold he is because he he was he was starting to fade within within all the questioning that Roy was saying. You know who knows about morphology and longevity, and he's like, I don't know such things. I just do eyes. You know, genetic design eyes. And when he says to him, um, you're a nexus, he goes, I designed your eyes. And Roy says, if only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. Yeah. I thought that was a really great line. That was a good line. Because it really was that I've seen so much and you were the one that gave me these eyes to see what I've seen. So, but when he says, you know, well, then who would know about, about morphology or how would, who, who would know about incept dates and longevity and it's, you know, well, J.F. Sebastian would. And then he's like, well, how do we find this J.F. Sebastian? Um, so Deckard returns to his apartment where Rachel is waiting. As I said to you, how would you not see her in the in the? I the know, the guy gets into the elevator and I get that it's been a long day and he's just pushing the button to go home or whatever. But it's like elevators are not that big. Even cargo elevators are not that big. You know if there's someone else in the damn elevator with you. And that jacket was huge. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was like a fur coat that she was wearing, but it had an enormous um, uh, collar collar on it. It was a, just for the yeah, fact that it was that ridiculous. I, I'm like, oh, really? So you got into the elevator, you sat there waiting for him to come home. Anyone else come home while you were sitting there? Yeah, exactly. But when he got in, he notices her. It's, it's almost like she had an invisibility field around her. I know. And when I, when he sees her, it's like you can see that he's terrified because he knows because because when he says to when he says to Tyrell, she's a replicant, isn't she? And he says, "Yes." And he he she goes he goes, "But she, she doesn't, doesn't know. know." And Deckard goes, "How what do you mean doesn't know? How can it not know what it is?" And he said, "Commerce is as our motto here at Tyrell, more human than human is our motto if we gift them the past it cushions them cushions them for their emotions yeah. and he goes memories you're talking about memories and he goes and of course Tyra says she's beginning to suspect she's still got no idea at this moment while rachel is waiting in in the the thing she tries to prove her humanity by showing him a family photo but after Deckard reveals that her memories are implants from tyrell's niece she leaves in tears Meanwhile, Pris locates Sebastian and manipulates him to gain his trust. And just saying that Decker was a real jerk to Rachel. I, I didn't like this scene since watching it again. And, and this is why I love and I'm, I'm saying this to everyone listening to the podcast. Do yourself a favor. L watch this movie. Really get just turn off all distractions and watch this movie because it's got subtle hints of this movie 
But this part of this movie, after watching it again, I can see at this moment he destroys Rachel. And be, and he still has that attitude of, well, it is just a machine, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, he she tells a story. He says to her, do you remember when you were going to play doctor with your brother? You snuck into an abandoned building. He showed you his. Then when it got to your turn, you chickened and ran. Did you tell anyone that? Your parents, Tyrell? He said, "You remember the uh, spider that used to live out the uh, in the in the bush in front of your bedroom window, orange body, green legs. You watched her build a web, and she goes, I watched and and uh, you built a web all summer, and then there was a giant egg in it. And he said, the egg, and she goes, the egg hatched, and he goes, yeah, and she goes, and a, and a hundred baby spiders came out, and it ate her. And he says, they're not your memories, they're implants, they're Tyrell's nieces." You know right then that up until he said that, she believed that that memory was his, was hers. Mm-hmm. Yep. But as soon as he is pulls this dick move of like, they're implants, you can see her entire world crashes down because it's like, well, then now why I am I? Now I don't know who I am anymore. Yeah. How, do, how would you possibly know a memory that I have if it was my memory sitting in my bedroom watching this all summer with this spider, how could you possibly know this? But you can see, and then he goes, oh, okay, sorry, it was a joke, a bad joke. I made a bad joke. Mate, you've just destroyed her emotionally. This is exactly what Tyrell was trying to avoid. If she's got a limited lifespan of four years, you've destroyed her. Yep. She's now got no idea who she is. She's got no comprehension of what she's supposed to be. And you've just taken the only happy memory that she had and has basically power-drived it into the ground and gone, well, you don't, as you said, you don't matter. You're a thing. You're not a human being. Yeah. But he's just destroyed that moment of her mortality yeah. of being a human being. I, I found that really, I, I didn't, I really. It was cruel. Like, it really was. I really didn't like that. And that was just something that I thought, you know, he could have done that a different way. He could have actually been a little bit more sympathetic to her. But it also just shows what little respect he has for the replicants. Yeah. I mean, which, which also explains why he was so good as a Blade Runner. Yeah, because he could, he was had the ability of switching on and off his emotions. Yeah. But you and, the, and the fact that he just had no regard whatsoever because they're just things to him. Yeah. And I just found that really, yeah, that's very, very upsetting. So then when Pris locates Sebastian, manipulates him to gain his trust, she, he's a genetic designer who failed the medical. He couldn't go into the outer colonies, but he lives in, an, in a, an abandoned building that's got more than enough space for people to live. When he invites her in, when she when he says, oh, you know, you can come in if you want, she has that look on her, her face of, oh, I'm so glad you're looking after me, whatever. As he turns and walks away, you can see the flecks of red in her eyes. So you know immediately, ah, she's a replicant. But she's not one of these dangerous ones because she's the pleasure model. Well, it's also interesting, just going back to the space that Sebastian lives in, that, you know, they designed Deckard's place to feel claustrophobic and to show, and he lives on the 97th floor. Yeah. And it to, to show that how people are like living on top of each other and real estate is at such a premium. And then Sebastian has this whole huge place to himself. Yeah, With the way they high, designed this high one. ceiling because Decker, the ceilings are very low. It's very close in. You know, the the kitchen is a little tiny mini galley, and yet um, Sebastian's place has these ginormous, huge ceilings and these floor to ceiling windows, and it's just yeah. massive. 
and the designers actually did that specifically to make it feel in this movie that you've you have to become minimalist now in los angeles you can't have the big big sprawling mansions you can't have the big apartments so being the fact that that Deckard is a minimalist this apartment suits him he's got his piano in there but that's all he's really got he's got that you know as you said he's got a couch or he's got a, a sofa he's got a, a small little tv that's so it's like 13 it's, inches oh very very small um and he really doesn't have much and that's the way that the designers of the sets wanted it to make it feel that you've gone from this open world of los angeles to a very very tight claustrophobic sort of st- uh, of, of a state yeah basically show you that as we've progressed in society we we can't have the big stuff anymore we've actually had to minimize minimize everything that's why there's off-world colonies because the earth's become overrun if you remember at the opening scene where you see the 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 panning shot of the city and you've got tyrell's corporation in the center of it like this gold sort of like um pyramid you can see the lights coming out from the top of the pyramid um, the amount of smog in there is astronomical because you've got the explosions of the gas uh, area that they're, 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 they're off shooting of that. You've got the carbon situation that's going. It's just, it's becoming overrun. It's always raining. It's always dark and gloomy and horrible and depressing. It's always nighttime there. It really is. And this is why it's almost making you depressed to be Deckard. And I think that's where Deckard's character has become because he's become depressed. He just doesn't, he doesn't want to be a blade runner he doesn't really know what he wants to do there's nothing much in his in his life he's got his apartment is so small and dingy and claustrophobic it makes you depressed being him you know so after a photograph from leon's apartment and the snake scale lead deckard to a strip club where zora works after a confrontation and chase deckard kills zora just wanted to touch on this scene so when he because this woman is the leader of a kick murder squad. So this is a woman that you basically don't screw around with. She can kill you because... Oh, the throat punch was awesome. Hell yeah. Knocks him back like 20 feet. But I also find it interesting that that's the only way she fought back. That And then the rest of it, she was like, oh, 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 running Well, away. no, she was originally going to strangle him. She she got up right on top of him, put her knee into his chest and grabbed his um, necktie and started to strangle him. And he and the only way that he survived is that other dancers came, came into in. the dressing room. And so she takes off running through the city. Yeah, like- right. And he, and he finds her a couple of times before they finally whatever. But, you know, you still think that she would have like doubled back and tried to kill him. Yeah, but I think in Zora's mind, you know, she has to get away from him. She knows that she And will. I get that, but she really didn't live up to her training on that one. Oh no, there was there was no real hand to hand combat. I mean, no. I think I think Leon kicks his ass more than she does. Yeah, he did. You know. But in the original um movie when they had the voiceover, as Zora's running away and he shoots her in the back, Deckard says on the voiceover, you know, I'm a blade runner. I know what I had to do, but it doesn't make me feel any better shooting a woman in the back. Even though I know that she's a replicant, I'm still shooting a woman in the back. Yeah. And at that moment, he has a little bit of his humanity come in that I think if she was standing toe to toe with him or facing him, he would have been more okay. And fighting him. And fighting him. If If he killed her or shot her directly, say, through the head when she was looking at him, he would feel fine. He has to, he has suddenly has that that heartfelt moment of, I know I had to kill her, but I feel she really. And you she- actually see that because he he 
hits her he shoots her the first time she keeps going and he has to chase after her walking through the the mannequins in this store display and then shoots her again and you can actually see that on his face yeah and when once he finally does take her down it really does show you that he is upset about about that situation that um scene when she's running through if you notice when she's running through she puts her hands in front of her face as she's running through in any hollywood movie they don't use real glass they use candy glass yeah so as she's running through she's breaking through the candy glass apparently there was a couple shards of the candy glass that actually cut the stunt woman as she went through oh yeah um well it's like you were saying that uh pris cut her arm on the taxi yeah when yeah thank you when when um when pris first comes across sebastian he he drops her his um house keys on the ground he startles Chris. She runs, basically runs away. He's parked his car in front of the building. As she runs, um, Daryl Hannah actually slips on some water, and you see her her right elbow go through the glass um, panel of the car. Um, she actually did cut her cut her arm. In the next scene that you see her, she's got a um, the jacket she's wearing. She's got a hole in her jacket where it's where it's ripped. But Daryl Hannah actually went through and actually they had to stop, stop um, filming. Um, and she was actually in the hospital for a couple of days because she actually had um, injured her arm. Oh, I didn't realize it was that bad. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She cut her, her arm because for some reason, the the people that actually were doing all the, the safety work didn't put candy glass in that panel because candy glass looks uh, yellow. It mm. doesn't look like regular glass. Well, I don't think they put it there because they weren't planning on anybody going through it. No. So they just left it as a regular yeah. regular um, bit of glass and she slipped because they put so much water on the ground and she slipped through. And as you, as you see, she goes to, luckily she didn't put her arm out to stop her. She slid sideways and went in with her elbow because they did say that if she'd put her arm out and gone through, she would have actually severed um, the tendons in her wrist. Yeah. Because it was that sharp. So luckily she slipped and at the very last moment turned her body enough just to put her elbow through the glass and yeah. that's how she cut her cut herself. So obviously, yeah, so now Zora is is dead. So Brian orders also him to retire Rachel, who has disappeared from Tyrell. After Deckard spots Rachel in the crowd, now this is stopping for a second, he invited her down to this dive sort of bar. Rachel was very um, almost like um, champagne and caviar. Yeah, she's she's classy. She's a very classy girl. Deckard, in his intelligence, goes, "Well, I'm I'm down at a bar at Four Sector. You know, why don't you come down for a drink?" And she's like, "That's not my kind of place." No, he's basically saying to him, "I am way above your league, buddy." Yeah, like you're the kind of guy that would go to a local pub around the corner. I'm the champagne, the caviar. Yeah, he's a dive bar. Yeah, because this is the girl that was was working closely with Tyrell in a three-piece suit. Why would I come down to a dive bar? But she does come down to meet him because obviously she's got some attractions to him. He sees her across the street. But as she, as he goes to go towards her, Leon uh, ambushes him and basically says, you know, my birthday is 2016. How long do I live? And he goes, four years. And Leon goes, you know, longer than you and starts to beat the living shit out of him. Yeah. Then says, you know, wake up, you know, it's time to die. Rachel is the only person that saves Deckard from death because she, because he's, Leon's already knocked the gun out of Deckard's hand. She picks up the gun and shoots Leon in the head and that offs Leon. He's, he's now dead and gone. 
So he's basically been knocked. I mean, Deckard's been knocked about something fierce. This is another little Easter egg that you don't see unless, and it's only for a uh, less than three seconds of the movie. But if you don't see it, if you don't pay attention, you'll miss it. And I and I'll tell you as we go along. So as Leon is uh, is about to kill Deckard, Rachel saves him by using Deckard's gun to kill Leon. They return to Deckard's apartment, and during a discussion, he promises not to track her down. So she says to she says to uh, Deckard, you know, um, what if I go? What about if I go north? What about if I disappear? She says, would you come after me? You know, would you hunt me? And he said, no, I wouldn't. And he walks away from her. And in that split moment, he turns towards her. Harrison Ford's out of frame, as in he's not clear. It's he's it's it's like he's he's out of focus. So she's in the foreground. He's a little bit in the background. He says but somebody would and if you look closely Deckard's got red eyes so we, dun, dun, now dun. we're so now we're trying to work out is Deckard a replicant or is was it just coincidence that he and Rachel both have the same red eyes that have shown up at that moment so as Rachel abruptly leaves Deck a uh, trial tries to leave this is where another dick moved by Deckard Deckard restrains her and forces her to kiss him and she ultimately relents what do you think of this seen this movie do you remember this scene or did you fall asleep i was asleep fabulous <laughs> but things like that actually happen in a lot of movies where the guy decides that he wants to be physical with the woman and she doesn't want to but then suddenly he's just such the amazing kisser that she just goes with it now in i personally think she should have slapped him okay in this scene because she hasn't had experience with this situation she says to him, I can't rely on my experience. I don't have the experience. He says, kiss me. And she goes, I, I can't rely on what you're saying because I've never experienced this. And he goes, say, kiss me. And she goes, kiss me. So he does. And then she then he says, tell me you want me. And she says, she goes to say something else. And he goes, tell me you want me. And she goes, I want you. And he, and he then she then she figures out that oh this is what he wants so she says put your hands on me so she's already got the idea that she's being forced into this situation remember she's tried to leave he's slammed the door you're not going anywhere you're staying where i want you he's grabbed her uh, you know on both shoulders and he's pushed her aggressively uh, back towards his window and she actually slams her her back against a window she goes to leave and he puts her his hand up uh, you know a full palmed hand as if to say, not I'm not trying to be, but bitch, you're not going anywhere. This is yeah. what I want. I'm getting it. You're going to give it to me. Yeah. Rachel's trying to explain to him that I've never experienced this before. This is not part of my memories. I've never been exposed to this. How am I supposed to react to something I don't know about? But somewhere along the line, she figures that, oh, if I say, put your hands on me, this is ultimately what he wants. If I give myself to him Everything will be fine. He hasn't come romantically towards her. I know. This is rape culture. Yeah. Perfect. He hasn't said, sweetheart, I love you. I want you. Let's make love. No, he, he wants to rape her is what he wants. Yeah. He's basically say, saying, what I want is what you're going to give me, even if you don't know about it and don't but want the, it. But, but this is also the, the perfect example of rape culture, which is that women are conditioned that if they give men what they want, then they'll be able to get out of the situation. And ultimately, she gives in to him. 
Yeah, is which given is into her rapist. Frustrating. You know, I've watched enough documentaries where you've got people that have the women that have survived rape and have said, you know, I had to be subservient to him because he said he would kill me unless I did this. Yeah. So essentially Rachel's doing exactly the same thing. My she's point exactly. Been, she's never been exposed to sex. She doesn't know what to ex- what he wants as far as what she's supposed to give him. So she has to just play along with the fact that he wants to rape her. Yeah. It's romantic. I mean, it, as time goes on, you know, she he says, do you love me? I don't think she knows what love is because you've basically, your captor, your rapist has yeah. said, do you love me? If, if, if It's her becoming idea is, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. So her idea is, well, if I say I love him and I trust him, then he won't rape me anymore. Or maybe it won't be as violent as what he did. Yeah. But he, but Deckard has really been, and this is, as I said, you watch this movie enough, you start to pick out little things like he's got red eyes. Is he a replicant? He's forcibly raping her, but it's supposed to be sugar-coated as a nice romantic scene. It's not romantic. No, it's not. You know, and as you said, you know, with when I said to you about well, with, with Pris, you know, why is she kicking Deckard's ass? And you said, well, maybe there are men out there that like that. They want the woman to be aggressive and forceful for them. If you want that situation, go to Pris. That's what Pris is designed for. She's a pleasure model. Rachel is an executive. Yeah, but there are also men who get off on turning someone of that level of perfection into something dirty. Yeah. Some men I, get off on that too. And I just find that really, yeah, I just, I'm, I've never been exposed to that. That's not anything I'm interested in. I'm sure there are men out there that, that you know, love that sort of thing and God love you, you know, party on. But as far as I'm concerned, yeah, this was yeah. not a romantic gesture at any moment. So upon arriving arriving at Sebastian's apartment, Roy tells Pris that the other replicants are dead because when she's there, she's talking to Sebastian and asks him, you know, why are you still on Earth? He says, I've got a syndrome where my glands uh, mature faster than what they should be. And he was only 25, but he looked like he was in his early 50s. He, yeah. was, he was dying. And then Pris says, hi, Roy. And of course, Roy's standing there going, and Roy, even though that he is an adult, he's got the mind of a child because he stands there and he goes, wow, you've really got some nice toys here. You can almost see that he's a kid in the candy store that he's never, he's never seen toys before, but because he's got that small little part of his mind as a child, he's like, oh my God, look at all these toys. But he says to Sebastian, I like a man that stays put. They're easy to find. So obviously he was hunting, you know, where Sebastian was from when he got the information from the uh the 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 genetic engineer who did the eyes so he's been trying to find sebastian so sebastian reveals that because of um the syndrome a genetic genetic premature uh aging disorder his life will be cut short just like the replicants that were built with a four-year lifespan so then he says to roy says well you know um he, he goes to play with um a chess set and he said, "No, no, no! You can't do that move. That's that, that's no." That good. was a gorgeous chess set. Too. Oh my god, that was that. I don't. I've, I've played chess. I don't know chess, but if I had to buy a, a chess set, that would be the one that I would buy. Yeah, it looks gorgeous. It really looks amazing. And he says, "Well, you know, is your, is your opponent any good?" And he goes, "Oh, well, Doctor Tyrell. I've only beaten him once." And he goes, "Oh," and he goes, "Tyrell." And he goes, "Yes, you know, Tyrell Corporation." And he said, uh, and something along the lines of, "He'd like to meet him." And he goes, "Oh." Because he goes, you know, if we don't find a way to extend our life, Pris has not got long to live. And he says about, you know, morphology and about incept dates and about, 
you know, the, uh, the expansion of life. And he goes, well, I can certainly bring this up to Dr. Tyrell when I meet him next. And he goes, well, better. I, I, I go in and speak to him myself. So Sebastian and Roy gain entrance into Tyrell's penthouse where Roy demands more life from his maker. They change the wording of this scene because when they bluff to get up to Tyrell, because he Roy's got this idea of, of, a, of a chess move and he says he gives him a chess move and Tyrell immediately counter counterattacks him and goes, well, what are you thinking about, Sebastian? He goes, uh, I think it's uh, rook to bishop or something, you know, checkmate, whatever. And he goes, hmm, you better come up, you know, to, to talk about this. Obviously, we're going to play a game. So when he gets up, Sebastian goes, well, I bought a friend. And Tyrell immediately knows who Roy is. And he goes, oh, I was actually expecting you sooner than this. And he goes, you know, what are you wanting? And he goes, <laughs> he originally said, I want more life, F-er. The bad word, the F word, er. They changed it to I want more life father. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because the way that it was received is like that. They didn't have this was this was not heavy in explicit dialogue in the no. in that scene where he goes I want want more life F er. Yeah, they thought that actually detracted from the actual statement because remember. Tyrell and Roy are now meeting each other. Roy is the basically Tyrell's idea. Mm -hmm. So you've, you're meeting your maker. And as he, as, as uh, Roy says, it's very hard to meet your maker. So he can see it. So basically Roy is basically giving him the, you are my father. You created my life. So yeah. I'm saying I want more life father rather than being aggressive as like, I want more life ever, you yeah. know? So when he goes through the whole thing of like, you know, I want more life, that's when Tyrell has to tell him that it's impossible. Roy confesses that he's done questionable things, but Tyrell dismisses this pr and praises Roy, uh, advanced design and, uh, and accomplishments in his short life. He says to him, you know, I've done questionable things. And he goes, but you've done remarkable things. Revel in your time. He said, a light that burns twice as bright lasts half, half as, long, as long and you've bought you've burnt so very very bright roy and he goes so revel in what you've done you've seen amazing things and he goes nothing that the the uh bio uh, bioengenetics people will stop me from getting into heaven for and he goes no you know but he did say you know would you like to be modified and he goes through everything he goes i just want more life and he goes ah the facts of life because he says you know what do you want and he goes what you know and he goes what's the problem and he goes death and he goes ah the facts of life we can't do anything for you everything that we've tried to extend life you know results in a virus that can kill the patient on the on the operating table we can't give you any more life you were designed the best way that we could design you there was nowhere nowhere we could go with you you're as you're as good as you can get roy kisses tyrell then kills him sebastian runs for the elevator followed by roy roy rides the elevator down alone Deckard is later told by bryant that Sebastian was found dead. So the way that um, Tyrell was was killed is that um, Roy kisses him, then basically squashes his head, putting his both thumbs into Tyrell's eye sockets and basically crushes his skull yeah. and kills him. Because obviously at that moment, Roy, go, Roy thought to himself, I can't have any more life. You can't give me any more life. You've outlived you? your usefulness. Yeah, what good are you? 
the same way as when he killed Sebastian. You led me, you helped me get into see Tyrell. You're not any use for me. I'll kill you too. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's unfortunate because really Sebastian, even though that he was dying, he still had life to go. Yeah. You know, at Sebastian's apartment, Deckard is ambushed by Pris, but kills her as Roy returns. This was when I said to you, well, why would Pris want to kick his ass? She, she's a pleasure model. But as you said, there are some men that like a little bit of um, rough and tumble. So obviously she was designed in such a way that she could defend herself. Yeah. But I, she... I remember one of the big things that people remembered from this movie when it first came out was her straddling him and sticking her fingers up his nose and and flipping him around oh yeah i mean she was gorgeous i mean even, even like her makeup that she did um and she made herself look like a porcelain doll and that's how that she was able to do um ambush him because he was going through the apartment and there were so many toys there you wouldn't have known which one was was real and which one wasn't so as he goes towards her and she's sitting on a pool table she's covered with uh like a veil like a a, a see-through um, sheer veil and he pulls the veil off and he's looking at it closely as if to say you know are you or are you not I can't work out whether you're a doll or whether you're real and then she kicks the crap out of him and that's when she starts to beat the hell out of him and when she runs away and starts doing the tumble turns to basically end, end his life that's when he shoots her twice and kills her um, and I think that very poignant moment when Roy returns and sees her dead you know because he's already told her that there's only two of us now. So now he realizes that he's now the only, he's the only one left. And he actually kisses her tenderly because he obviously meant, she actually meant, meant a great deal to him. So it was a very upsetting moment for him to see that his mate, you know, and as, as she said to him, you know, we, if we don't get help soon, we're going to die. Yeah. And Roy's got this, and this is why they, they visit Tyrell. Cause he's like, no, we won't, we won't die. He still had that thought of his, in his mind, like, well, no, I'll go and get more life. This is the whole thing. If he gets more life for himself, does he then bring Pris and gets more life? I, well, yeah. I, I, or it's like if I, you know, once I find out how I can extend mind, I could come back and do it for you. But as he said, you know, you could have been modified, but that's all you could really do for him. Yeah. He couldn't actually give him any more life. So Roy's body begins to fall apart at the end, as his end of his lifespan nears. So as he's going to attack Deckard, his hand starts clenching up into a fist. So uh, Roy looks down and sees some exposed um, beams with nails. So he actually puts a nail through his hand. And as it puts his nail through his hand, his hand, his hand opens up again. So he's basically like, oh, okay, I've got some more time with myself or well, my, my hands useful. I can still use my, my body because it's, I am falling apart. I know it. I'm getting towards the end, but I can actually do some damage while I'm running through. So, he chases Deckard through the building and ends up on the roof. Deckard tries to jump onto the other roof, but is left hanging on the edge. Roy makes the jump with ease, and as Deckard loosens his grip, Roy hoists him onto the roof to save him. A lot of people have said this is the moment where um, Roy actually has a bit of humanity. He actually sees hum humanity. Because he sees Deckard um, starting to lose his grip and he yeah, it would have been an easy thing just to let him fall exactly um Deckard thought to himself and this was actually in the original script when he said the uh, when he does the the voiceover he said i don't know why he saved my life maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before not just his life anybody's life my life all he wanted were the same answers the rest of us want where did i come from where am I going? How long have I got? 
all I could do was just sit there and watch him die because he does as he's standing there. Um, he says this beautiful speech. Um, and I actually really want to find it because it's such it is such a beautiful speech that he says as he jumps over and he and he goes to slip off. Deckard is saved by Roy and he's dragged over to the edge of the edge of the um, under safety. And Roy looks at Deckard and says, "I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glitter in the darkness at ten hours a gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain." time to die and that's why Deckard has this thing where at that moment he really does feel he really wanted more life he loved life uh, Roy loved life more than anyone could at that moment because he could see his mortality had, had ended I love how poetic that is it, it is it is one of the most beautiful parts of a movie I've seen as far as just verbalizing what a character felt it's a, it's a beautifully written line it really is i applaud the writers for, for for having that because at that moment you know when he does say time to die and does die and deckard can do nothing except look at him because it's like yeah. you're watching the last part of a person's life end. it was his job to witness yeah as they say there's always you know a witness in history he actually saw the the end of yeah. Nexus six and saw but at that moment roy decided that my life's been through killing i've been through you know the stuff that i've seen on different civilizations and i've obviously witnessed zora killing people i want my last acts of life to be wonderful to actually mean something yeah so as gaff arrives he shouts to deckard about rachel it's too bad she won't live but then again who does Deckard, Deckard returns to his apartment and finds Rachel asleep in his bed. Deckard sees an origami unicorn, which makes him recall Gaff's words. He leaves the apartment block with Rachel. Now, as the movie is going on, there's a scene where Deckard is sitting at a um, at his piano, and he's starting to fall asleep. And he has a vision of a unicorn. At the last moment, as he's as he's helping Rachel to the elevator. He walks past because Gaff is notorious for doing origami. He'll pick yeah, up. Yeah, we've tooth... been seeing those throughout the film. Yeah, he'll pick up a toothpick and make it into a person. He, he gets a bit of paper and makes it into a swan. As Rachel and Deckard are running towards the safety of the of the elevator to leave the apartment, Deckard knocks over an origami unicorn and looks at the at the unicorn and and he hears saying, you know, too bad she won't live. So obviously there's an there's an idea that at some stage Gaff had actually arrived at Deckard's apartment intending to kill Rachel. Now this is where people have suggested that Deckard was a replicant because if Deckard has seen the vision of a unicorn and Gaff makes him a unicorn, how would Gaff know that he actually dreamt of a unicorn? Fair question. So it's almost like Gaff knows he Gaff's a human being. Gaff knows what's imprinted into replicants. He knows that he has thought of a unicorn at some right. stage. So to remind him, to remind Deckard that guess what? I know you're a replicant. I had a chance to kill your your replicant, and in a sense, I could have stayed there and killed you. But I've given you the chance to live because when Deckard was uh, was asking um, uh, Tyrell about Rachel, he said that she has longevity she's got unlimited lifespan she could last for a hundred years if possible 
So that's why that he and Rachel disappear and, and leave right. because he already knows that she doesn't have a four year lifespan. He knows that she's got a longevity life. So she could live, as I said, for the next 20 years. So yeah. they could live happily. Once again, it's not happily ever after as far as <clears throat> Rachel being, I'm in love with you. You're in love with me. She's his captor because he raped her to be with her. But yeah. when he goes into the into his apartment and says to Rachel, do you love me? And she goes, I, I love you. And he goes, do you trust me? And she goes, I trust you. So it's basically like, well, we've got to get the hell out of here because I've got a feeling someone's coming to kill you because you are the last replicant. Leaving that origami um, unicorn on the ground just gives that significant feeling of like everyone, you know, I know you're a replicant. And I'm letting you get away. I'm letting you go, Deckard. But. I know you you could see how close I was to killing you. Yeah. So that being said, what did you think of the, this movie? Uh, before before we get into that, yep. I just want to do one more behind the scenes thing, which is to talk is to have you talk about Rutger Hauer's um, audition and how he showed up to his audition. Yeah. So when Rutger Hauer was given the um, the the uh, chance to actually audition for the movie. He went away and he decided to cut his hair extremely short in a very, uh, almost like a spiked sort of like haircut. He dyed his hair white and he showed up to the audition in the same jacket that you see him walking throughout the movie. That's not a prop jacket. That's not from wardrobe. That's his own. It's actually a longer version of a motorcycle jacket because he used to ride, ride motorcycles. So that was his own jacket that he bought from, from home. But when he went into the audition, they said to him, okay, you know, read the line. And someone had said to him, well, that's a rather interesting look you've got there, Rudger. And he goes, oh, well, no, this is what he looks like. This is what Roy Batty looks like. And he goes, you've had a, a choice, a chance to look at the script and read the script. How would you know what he looks like? And Rudger said, this is what I see him as. The hairstyle, the short hairstyle, the white hair, the jacket, this is Roy Batty. And they cast him on just the fact that he actually had foresight to go away and dream up this idea of what commitment. Roy Batty was actually going to look like. Yeah. So they said they, they said in the in uh, in interviews, we had no other we had no other choice but to give him this role because no other no other actor you know like you've got you know Sean well no Young. if he had sucked in the audition they wouldn't have given it. To oh him. yeah, but if you've got someone that is actually as good as Rudger Hauer was but also shows up already pre-done. I mean, he he was basically ready to, if they said to him, okay, you've got the job and we're shooting in a half an hour, he could have walked on set and done it. Yeah, he could have just got, walked into makeup to get the makeup done and that's it. <laughs> yeah, and he was already done, ready to go. He, yeah. his, his look, his he was already, he was done. Yeah. But it was really upsetting when you also look at it as that Roy Batty died in 2019, the same date that Rudger Hauer died. Yeah, the same year. The same year in 2019. Yeah. That's poetic. Yeah. but. He was such an amazing actor. Really I saw was. a lot. I've seen a lot of his movies. This one is predominantly when he was alive. He would always, you know, mention Roy Batty in Blade Runner. He'd done so many other movies, but everyone re remembered him as Roy Batty of Blade yeah. Runner. He was that good. He really was. So, no, I I I love this movie. Um, so uh, what do you think? Um, I thought it was all right. You're not a big Blade Runner fan. I'm not a huge Blade Runner fan. I enjoyed the book. I liked the book. I've really got to get the book. That's one thing that I want to, and I'm not a reader. I, I was even remarking to my son today that I'm not a reader at all, but I really want to get that book because I want to, I want to actually want to read 
do androids dream of electric sheep? And if nothing, just to put it into the collection. Yeah, that was actually my first Philip K. Dick book. And I became quite a fan of his. I read a lot of his stuff when I was in high school. Yeah, and I and I and I never realized that Blade Runner was um, auctioned off from "Do Androids Dream of Electric yeah. Sheep?" Yeah. And I really do love that the the way they've actually designed this movie, the music, the costume, the set design. I think the entire movie embodies what a movie should be. Visually, what... visually, it was a very in it, it was stunning in a lot of ways. Not stunning in an avatar kind of way, but <laughs> no. I mean, I, I love that that when it gives you enough chance to not see the city without there being rain and stuff. Yeah. And as the camera pans over, and Tyrell's city is gold, and it just yeah. it just looks absolutely between that. There, and I like that. There's a lot of subtext in this film. Yeah, and it, that's why you've really got to watch it a couple of times to really appreciate what Ridley Scott was trying to do what he was trying to visualize that the, the way yeah. that it was the the utopian you know society that we'd become just the just the the interiors of stuff i i just i cannot say more but yeah more i mean i ha i have to admit after after talking about this it makes me want to watch it again and see if i can stay awake this time that would be handy because well it is it's one of those really unique movies that you it's not if this if that see this see that it's basically just it's as i said they 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 took out the effer and put in father because as Ridley Scott said, it didn't fit the bill. No, it, it was actually more contextually word. correct to use father. Yeah. It didn't fit that he was suddenly aggressive towards no. Tyrell because all he wanted was more life. Why would he be aggressive towards someone that could give him I life? I mean, he was a lunatic. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, he was definitely a sociopath, but he, but yeah, he, that, that type of aggression did not fit his character. It no, I mean, when he was coming down from Tyrell's in the elevator and he has that vengeful face that you can see that, yeah, he could kill you at any moment. But when you see him up with Tyrell, he's very calm. He's very relaxed. He yeah. goes through the things. What about a protein that would stop the, 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 the virus? No, we can't do that. Or yeah. what about this? No, we can't do that. I've done questionable things. He never said to you, I effing hate you and this and Well, that. you better do it or else. Yeah. It yeah. was basically two people having a conversation and even Tyrell said, but this is all academic. I can't do anything for you. There was no anxiety. There was no anger. And even Tyrell, when he first sees Roy come into the, to where he was, he didn't have a look of, oh my God, I am terrified of yeah. Roy. He knew that he eventually he would come to him for this. Yeah. But he just had that look like, oh, I'm surprised you didn't come sooner. Oh, it's today. Okay. Yeah. But he never had this yeah. get the F out of here, Roy, because yeah. you know, he's not putting him on the aggression. And that's actually one of the refreshing things about this movie is the reminder that you can make a superior film without profanity. Yeah. And that's why I love the fact that when Ridley Scott was given the the control over the entire movie, when when they said to him, you can redo it one more time, you know, that you can you can have creative control. He went through and re-edited it and he took out the swear word and put yeah. in father because he said the swear word at that moment didn't it, it didn't fit reason for it. Yeah, the it didn't father fit. was better because it's now the father meeting the son. Yeah. It's the maker seeing the creation. Exactly. And that's how it was. So but that being said, on a scale of zero to five, zero being I want the two hours of my life back to five being I'd watch it again as soon as the credits are over, what would you give this movie? I'd give it a solid three. Three. Yeah. I would not say I would watch it immediately after the credits are over, but I definitely say that in 
in a year span, I could watch this at least every couple of months. I have always given it and I will always give it a five. Yeah. It is that good visually, um, musically. Acting is spot on. There's not one part of the movie that I'd sit there and go, oh, the acting, good Lord. Everything flowed beautifully. The way they, they showed you what society could become I was actually, it was just something that I've I've always loved of Blade Runner. And as I said, it took me a long time to appreciate it and get to the point where I've got every copy of the movie um, and and appreciate the way that he was doing it. I love this movie. And I would say anyone that's listening to this podcast, please do yourself a favor, go out and buy it. You will not be disappointed. The next copy I want to get. Actually, I think it's on Netflix right now. It is. That's right. It is. It's on Netflix. Um, the next copy I want to get is in 4K. Even though I don't have a 4K TV or a 4K player, I want to get it. And because eventually Just I will Just because have... he wants the complete collection. Well, because eventually I will get a 4K TV and a 4K player, but I want to see it in a 4K resolution. I think yeah. there is more that I will actually be able to visually dive into with this movie watching it in 4K. Yeah, so listeners, I got to I gotta tell you, I think Paul likes this movie. Yes, and I am very happy to be 49, I'll say that with a tongue-in-cheek, and this being my birthday pick for 2021. So happy birthday, Paul. Thank you. And that being said... What are we doing next time? Um, we've actually had to move a couple of things. So our next episode is actually going to be what we were originally planning to release the other day that we actually put... Um, um, uh, Gallipoli in place of, we're actually going to do Outbreak. So that's what be in the this. middle of a pandemic, we're going to do a movie called Outbreak. I know who would have thought, <laughs> good lord! <laughs> but yes, yeah, so we are going to move that to um, the following week. So after after this, okay. Week, so next next week is Outbreak. Outbreak. And in the meantime, we'll see you at the movies. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for the Home Class Movie Chat with Kevin Paul. Home Class Movie Chat is produced and edited by Create Your Change. If you would like to launch a podcast, please contact Create Your Change at createyourchange.com.au or hello at createyourchange.com.au. Please follow Home Class Movie Chat on social media and sign up for our newsletter at homeclassmoviechat.com so you can keep up with the latest news. We hope you enjoyed yourself today and will join us next time. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a review on the platform where you listen to this podcast.